Welcome to Sexology, a podcast that untangles the science of sex and pleasure. And now, with this week's episode, your host, clinical psychologist, Dr. Nazanin Moali. Hello and welcome to episode 322 of Sexology podcast. This is a podcast that explores all things sex and relationships. Today, we have a very special guest joining us to talk about a topic that is often overlooked when it comes to sexual pleasure. You guessed it right. We're going to talk about prostate massage. Our guest is Dr. Phil Bontrock, a highly respected urologist with his own practice in Germany since 2017. He has a very impressive CV. He has subspecialties in sexual medicine, sport medicine, medical tumor therapy, and genetic counseling. And he's a fellow of the European Board of Urology, fellow of European Committee of Sexual Medicine, and certified psychosexologist with studies in medicine and Scandinavian language. In this episode, we're going to explore the concept of prostate massage for pleasure, and we'll delve into the underlying mechanism that makes this type of stimulation so pleasurable for men. Then we're going to talk about the research studies that support prostate massage for pleasure and how he compares the male P-spot to the female G-spot. Before we dive into the episode today, I want to invite you guys to make sure you are checking our free content. We have tons of free things based on the topics that our clients and our listeners are interested in. So if you are ready to spice things up, you can download our list of nine hot foreplay ideas that you can implement tonight. This is completely free and it's my gift to you. You can head to the show notes and download the free checklist. So sit back, relax, and enjoy this informative conversation with Dr. Stefan Bontrock. Hello and welcome back to another episode of Sexology Podcast. I am so excited to welcome Dr. Stefan Bontrock. Dr. Stefan, welcome to our show. Thank you very much, Nazani. <laughs> Did I pronounce your name correctly? I practiced it. We practiced it for a couple of seconds. <laughs> yes, absolutely. It was perfect. It's definitely my pleasure. I know we were just chatting about your very interesting background. I know that when I got to know your channel, I saw that you, you wrote urologists and sexologists. And I was very intrigued about that. So I know we just talked about it, but tell us how, how did you get into the world of sexology? What kind of training that it requires in Germany for a physician to become a sexologist? So, well, actually the first contact I had with sexology was when I was studying at the U of A, University of Alberta in Canada, because they had this bookstore and they were selling the books in a bag once a year. So all the old books were like, you could buy them for a dollar and you would get like five kilograms of, of books. <laughs> and I would buy, I think, 50, 50 bags. So <laughs> I bought a lot of books. And one of those bags actually had a book in it and it was human sexuality. And I traded this one in for, for another book that I got. So it's one of my my roommates got this book, so I, I traded it and I still have it until today. And this is how I got interested in this because I, I also studied literature. So I, I studied Scandinavian languages 
And if you, if you read literature, you very soon find out that one of the motives that's driving people is sex. So if you read books, if you watch films, movies, everywhere, you, you get these sexual motives. And, and we were talking about my job interview because I, oh, I had a crisis kind of like when I was ready with my internship and I, I thought maybe I should quit, not become a doctor. And I applied at the Boston Consulting Group. And then in the job interview, they were kind of asking like, well, Boston Consulting Group was founded in, in Boston. And guess what? Next firm was in, in Tokyo, Japan. And why do you think it was? And everybody was going like, well, this is very important for the economy and, and Japan growing market. And it was very strategically healthy to do that. And I, I didn't speak up. I'm, I'm really mad at me up until today that I didn't because I thought, well, most probably there was some kind of woman involved. And this is why they went to, to Tokyo. And, and it was. So <laughs> it was true. And, and, and so you can see that, that sexual motives are everywhere. And when I got to become a doctor, a urologist, problem is we urologists, we do a lot of bad stuff because we have to treat cancer. And as soon as you have cancer in, in the prostate and, and cancer in the bladder, the other guys are doing bad stuff as well, like they, they're doing rectal cancer and stuff. That's the same damage they make. So we, we take away people's sex lives by doing this largely, depending on how old you are and, and how far it has gone and what kind of operation or procedure it's, it's done. Sex very often is a victim of, of what we do, but we don't take any action to, to restore that. So we focus on erections can say we focus on hydraulics because we we try to to make the penis erect again but all the other stuff that's connected to this like sexual desire like orgasm pain sometimes pain is a problem we don't address that and we leave out the partners completely in, in this issue so we, we we focus on on the penis and i thought it was wrong uh, so i went into a secondary education in sexology and i went to berlin at the charity, they offer a program that's over a couple of years. And I did my cases and we did all the stuff that's necessary for sex therapy. And I apply this in my daily practice because I think this is important. Somebody has to do it. So <laughs> I think that's incredibly important. I think when it comes to sexual health, sometimes sex therapists are the last people that clients, patients go to when they're struggling with sexual health. Physicians are the first line of conversation, if any. And depending on the physician's information, their belief, the messages that people get is just so important because I had clients that they kind of perhaps a physician thought sex life is not as important and they felt like their sexual concern was minimized. So I think it's incredible as a physician that you pursue that higher education and so you can help clients and inform them. I think you're very unique in that sense. But even with my friends and colleagues that are physician, I tell them like just even sometimes giving people resources, that's also important because sometimes we don't know if that's not our specialty, what to do. And we want to shut down the conversation consciously or unconsciously because we feel we don't have the resources. I know that you have a lot of great videos on, on your YouTube channel about sexual health. And you know, what was interesting is that I know that you have a new video on date pleasure. So, and I was kind of, I wanted us to focus more on that as a kind 
kind of like someone that works in the field of sexual health. I know many of my clients that experience pleasure from prostate stimulation. There are toys for it. I hear from it from my clients. But are there research studies that talk about that, like specifically prostate stimulation for reaching orgasms for men? Simple answer, no, there aren't. So we we more or less don't know anything about it from a scientific viewpoint. Like when I was doing this video, I went online and I, I was searching, I always search in Google Scholar. I think it's a great tool just to find articles and, and what does the evidence say. And we don't find anything. So if at all, there are some hints in some articles or books where you can read about it, a short paragraph that this is known, this exists. And this also exists in other circumstances, like let's say you have a spinal cord injury. This is also a problem. And, and, and sometimes in spinal cord injury, you can achieve orgasms by using a vibrator. It's a special kind of vibrator for the penis, which you put on the glands of the penis. Or it's also known that in, in special cases, it's also possible to reach orgasm through prostate massage. This is what's known from a scientific point of view. So then I went to the usual Google platform and just Googled that. And there was millions of, of websites offering all kinds of expertise and all kinds of, of toys or uh, appliances that you can buy to, to have an, a prosthetic orgasm. And by the way, my patients don't like when I palpate the prostate. <laughs> so they, they always wonder, they, they tell me, doctor, tell me, is there anybody who likes that? That's terrible. <laughs> but I think that's one of the wonderful things that, that you're doing it <laughs> to making sure the clients are healthy. But yeah, I think like it requires certain circumstances for it to be pleasurable. And you know, what's interesting is that it's, I, as someone that like, I'm a psychologist, because I hear it a lot from my clients about how they enjoy it, I never even thought that that's something that like there's not scientific literature in it because it's a common lived experience of so many of my clients. Why do you think it's that is not something that's been studied, right? Even there could be studies that could have examined this and say like, this is not a real thing. But I'm curious, where do you think that lack of curiosity came came about when it comes to the this particular thing? Well, first of all, it's money. It's not a heroic thing to, to do research about orgasms. So it's, it's much more money in, when you do prostate cancer. And there's not much funding for this kind of study. And then we have to keep in mind that still, even though we live in the first 21st century, it's an incredible taboo to talk about sex. And, and when you talk about prosthetic orgasms, that's even more a taboo because it involves talking about homosexuality, which is a, a big problem in many parts of the world. And even if even heterosexuals can have prosthetic orgasms, they, most of them, they don't want to get close to being associated with homosexuality or, or what they think is deviant behavior. And I think this is also true for, for the doctors who would do a study like that. So a study like that, that I could imagine would involve some kind of MRI screening of the brain while doing prosthetic orgasms. That would be very interesting to see. We do this in other kinds of sexual interaction. Like we, we have people have sex under the MRI or they, they masturbate or they, they get videos to see under the MRI and we see which which centers of the brain get activated. But we don't do this in prosthetic orgasms. We completely ignore, ignore them. 
And I think this is because it's a big taboo. I agree with you. When we're thinking about tiers of funding for studies, like for like sexual health often gets the, it's the last kind of like, or very niche type of funding. So that, that's part of it. In, in the realm of sexual health funding and research, we always focus on sexual dysfunctions, the challenges, especially people of certain minorities. I know there have even been more studies, not a lot, but more research studies on women's orgasm because that's something that's more kind of like a woman considered minority. And then you're right that like as people who have same-sex experiences, so pleasure is not something that gets tons of funding. But I'm glad that we're talking about it. And what I love in your video, you compared the orgasm to G-spot orgasms. Because, you know, when people ask me about G-spot, it's a tough one to answer. Kind of going back to this, I know that many of my female clients, they experience G-spot orgasm. There are toys for it. And scientifically, I know that there are studies that says like the G-spot doesn't exist. There are those studies as well. So it's very unique when you talked about it. So tell us more about that. How did you, how do you make that comparison? First of all, the G-spot I think it's a matter of belief or disbelief. So if you're looking at them, you either believe that it exists or you don't believe it, it, it exists. And I, I have to say, I kind of believe that it exists. When, when I combine all the information that I get, it makes very much sense. So the G spot is a, a point in the interior vaginal wall. So where's this? I think most of the listeners don't know where to look for it. So it's, if you put in a finger in, in vaginal and it's up, to the bladder, to the urethra, and it's a couple of centimeters up. And there, funnily enough, there is also the prostate in men. So if you go through the rectum and you, you palpate the finger up, that, that's where the prostate is. And this is more or less the, the, the exact same spot where women say, who have the G-spot, say they have, there it is. Because not, not every woman reports that they have it. So if you're looking at the studies, it's about two thirds, maybe, maybe 80% up something like that, who report that they have a very sensitive area up there. Uh, when, they, they, when it gets stimulated, they get orgasms, which are different from orgasms by clitoral stimulation. And the one who, who found out about it was actually, this is why it's called the G-spot. I don't think that many listeners know why it's called the G-spot. What, what, where's G coming from? Like, can you G or what is it? It's Grafenberg. Ernst Grafenberg is, is the guy who covered or it's named after Ernst Grafenberg. And he was a gynecologist. And as it happens, he was living and he was born in Adelepsen. Adelepsen is like a 20 minutes ride from where I live. So I did another video where I went to Adelepsen and showed the city of Adelepsen where the G-spot is from. And he studied in Göttingen, the, the town where I am practicing. And he went to Munich and became a gynecologist in Berlin. That was back in the days where we had dark times in Germany. So he eventually, at the end of the 30s, he, he was sent to prison and he, he got out and he emigrated to America and he had a gynecological practice in New York. He died there in 57, I think it was. But in the year 1944 and in 1950, he published two papers, which were groundbreaking kind of, so to speak, where he had this discovery that when he inserted diaphragms, when the, the women who were using diaphragms for contraception, they reported to, back to him that they lost their ability to have orgasms. And then he thought, well, why is that? And he put a cap on the uterus instead of the diaphragm, which was covering the anterior vaginal wall. And then they got back their orgasms. 
So that made him think that there must be some erogenous zone that was covered by the diaphragm that when you remove the diaphragm, it's a special spot that was later on to become the G spot. And he didn't name it that way. So it was named in 18, in 1981. Two researchers named it after him because they believed that it was the G spot. And if you're looking more closely to this, I think we have to go back to embryology. So the state we all have been in and how it all starts. And I think we have to keep in mind that nature is female. I don't think that everybody knows this. So if you let nature do its work, everybody would become a girl or woman. So the difference between men and women is testosterone. So already in the in fetal life, it starts with week 18 at gestation. And for about, about two or three months, the male fetus is bathed in testosterone. And all this, what happens to developing into a boy is, is, is initiated at this stage. So we all start the same. So that means we all have the same kind of ground structure, basic structure that we are constructed from. Meaning that also urogenitally, we all are the same in the beginning before it like divides and, and with the testosterone. But what becomes the, the prostate in men? Well, it, it shrinks in women, but very many women, they have glands in the same location. And well, there is some quarrel. Do they exist? Don't they exist? Some have seen them, some haven't, but there's, I think there's pretty much good evidence, which histologic evidence, which shows that these glands, if you look at the structure, it looks like a prostate and it's a prostate before puberty in boys. And these glands are named like periurethral glands, skinny's glands, that's Skin described them in 1880. And these glands are situated at the same, at the very same point where the G-spot is. And some women, they have the ability to ejaculate. So when they orgasm, they have ejaculation. And when you look at this, the fluids that come out, it contains PSA, which is the prostate specific antigen. So it kind of makes sense that this could be the remnants of what develops into the prostate of men. So if the G spot is located at this area and men have an, and it's kind of no prostate and men have prostate orgasms. Now we're getting there. So, so the G spot is kind of the, the P spot in men, it's the prostate spot. So if you stimulate that spot in both sexes, for, for me, it makes sense that the, this is this kind of the same spot. And this is why men can experience prostate orgasms. At least that's my explanation. And the good thing is we don't have any scientific data, so I am allowed to speculate about this. <laughs> I think that's incredible. And I think like I was a little bit skeptical when you started talking about when you went to the kind of embryology part of it and you watched the video that that made sense. And curious. So going back to this debate between G spot, does it exist? Doesn't it doesn't exist? Some people talk about G spot, like on that area, when you're stimulating it, you're really stimulating the internal part of clitoris. Like that's, that's what you're stimulating. That's why it feels good. What do you think about that? Does that make sense? Like based on your experience? No, it doesn't because the clitoris spreads apart. Like it's, it's fused in the middle in the outer parts so that, that you can see. And then it goes and divides to the left. It goes to the left and the right. So it's not in, the, in this area where the G spot is. So anatomically, I wouldn't buy that. Well, that, that makes sense. <laughs> it's like a wishbone. You're right that, that there is this kind of like separation part of it. And 
the part that people are talking about when they experience G-spot orgasm is more like the part that doesn't kind of like the, the, the separation is. You know, with female ejaculation, sometimes people talk about it being urine. Yes, there might be some urine in it too, because when you look at anecdotal evidence, it's reported like up to, what, what, what was it? Almost a liter. <laughs> so th there's no gland that would be able to hold a liter. But it might be a mixture, but fact is there is some PSA in it. And this can vary a lot, like from one milliliter to very large amounts. And if there are larger amounts, I think there is urine in it because there might be some relaxation of the external sphincter of the bladder so that urine comes out because orgasm involves contractions, both in men and women. And these muscular contractions in the pelvic floor, these are responsible for the very intense, pleasurable feelings that go along with the orgasm. Don't ask me how this is wired because still it's, it's speculation. We, we haven't figured out what orgasm is and how it works and why it works like it does. And just look at the definitions of orgasm. What, what is an orgasm? We're not able to say that. Like, I think we have 26 definitions of orgasms, depending on who's defining it. Like the, the guys who do the MRI are, are defining it totally different from the guys who do the endocrinology and the urologi urologists and gynecologists. They have their own opinion. There's lots of de debate on orgasm. And really, you wouldn't be able to describe an orgasm, would you? So this is a very interesting fact that we kind of can remember how it is but we wouldn't be able to describe that. And this might be one of the reasons why we are looking to, to, to have an orgasm again and again, because you can't really remember how it is. <laughs> Only when we have it, it's, it's the, the real thing. Then, oh, okay, I remember, but two days later, it's gone. Like you can kind of remember how it was. I know. I, I love when people are kind of like are curious. People like I get the question from my female listeners. I have two shows, one in Farsi, especially in the Farsi show, people asking, okay, like we never experienced orgasms. And when they asked me, how does it feel like? I, I felt like, isn't that all orgasms feel like it? But I was part of a panel and people have different experiences, even like a personal experience versus a, like a scientific lens that you're talking about. Kind of going on to the kind of people's experience, the male... I don't know if you have talked about it with your clients or they ask questions about it. Is the quality of like experience that people who has prostate experience through prostate massage for pleasure, is it different than kind of, for example, like vaginal, penile vaginal experiences? Is the pleasure different? It is said so. So if you look at the things that people report, there is a difference and also in the contractions. So in penile orgasms, you kind of have like six, seven contractions. And it said like in prostate orgasms, it's up to 12 contractions. Wow. Plus that there seems to be no refractory time. And we, we haven't really figured out what the refractory time is because in penile orgasms, and this is coupled to ejaculation in, in almost every man, you, you can't have two orgasms in a row and it's just gone. But in, in penile, in, in prosthetic orgasms, this mechanism kind of seems to get bypassed. So it's, it's possible to have several orgasms. And if you're looking on the internet and especially on YouTube, there's just lots of videos about how to have dry orgasms. Personally, I think that's nonsense because you have to have certain circumstances to, to, to achieve a dry orgasm. Like you have to have some neurological disease, diabetes, prostate cancer, where the prostate is gone, some, some medication that might cause this, or you're having orgasms one after the other and then the fluid decreases but I, I don't to me it's not not strictly speaking a, a dry orgasm 
but to learn how to separate this to 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 have an orgasm without ejaculation i think that's impossible there are some people who claim who can do this but as as i say it's it's easier to teach a 60 year old newbie who is sitting in a in an office all, all his life to swing the golf club like tiger woods then learned how to separate this i don't think it's possible I'm always also cautious and skeptical when, when people say that, like, you know, that's that's like, you know, there's all these different tiers that the bigger tier of pleasure is for men to separate their orgasms from their ejaculation. And I hear all these hypes about dry orgasms, but that's not part of the medical condition that someone has. So I, I, I agree with you on that. And but there might be uh, maybe I made one exception. There might be men who are able to do this naturally, so we don't know how and why. So there are two types of multi-orgasmic men. One type is is able to ejaculate, and within a time frame shorter than twenty minutes, is able to ejaculate again. This is possible, and there are less than ten percent of men who can do this. And there seem to be some men who have the ability to to orgasm without ejaculation, but this is very often, it's the prostate guys who, who have their prostate removed. I think this is very interesting, but it tells a lot about physiology. So when you remove a part and what is happening then, and they, they kind of have a condensed orgasm. So they have four or five orgasms in a row, and then sometimes they can ejaculate, but this is very rare. I, I don't think it can be learned. Dr. Schreffer, I want to make sure I'm getting this right. So if you remove your prostate, your orgasms can get stronger. Is that what you're saying? <laughs> yes, yes. But sadly, this happens very rarely, I have to say. So I personally had one patient where this happened. He, he told me, I couldn't believe it when he told me at first, but then I, I, I did some research and I read about this. And he said it was incredible how intense the orgasm became after the prostate was removed. But orgasmic changes are quite common and not for the better. After a radical prostatectomy, it's it's mostly for the worse. So can it's about 20-25% who retain their orgasms as they were before, but for most it's it's weaker. Many patients describe it like get sexually engaged and oh, that was it. And it might have to do with contractions that are absent after a radical prostatectomy. It might be a theory that's behind this but it's possible that it gets better you know what you were talking about refractory and I, like my idea like with like shorter than 20 minutes i i thought that you're unless you're under 18 <laughs> that's not gonna happen so you know, what i hear that like you can be like 70 years old and you can have a your refractory can be like 15 minutes is is that like are there cases like that <laughs> It's well. It's a matter of age, and the refractory time is is much shorter if you if you are younger, and stimulation plays a, a role too. So there's a very much desire going on, and and things that are very new and exciting. Then the refractory time is shorter than in couples who have been together for a long time. It might be longer, and then when we get older, it, it increases. So then it might be a couple of hours, even a couple of days, like eighty, ninety year old. He might have a couple of days in between until he's able to to have another orgasm. I, I have clients that are older and they say, like, if we want to have partner sex with our partner, we need to stop masturbating one or one day or two days before. So I want to make sure that we be able to perform with our partners. I always thought that with refractory time, it's physiological. It's interesting. There is a, I hear that, that then there's a psychological part play into it as well. Yeah, but it might, might also be hormonal. So they are looking into prolactin because when, when we have orgasms, there are some ho hormones going on in the brain. 
and the prolactin is slightly elevated and this might contribute to this, but we're not quite sure. And, and when you look at these people who have less refractory times, it looks like they have something with the prolactin going on, that they have less prolactin in, in the situations so that you're able to have another orgasm. Speculation. <laughs> I know that, like, as you said, like many of these things we're talking about is speculation because funding is limited. But I, I like I and I talk to my clients and I'm sure you do a lot as well. And these are some of the collective experiences that we hear from people who are enjoying different kind of experiences. So as far as the stimulation, you said like when people come for exam, that's not the time they have an orgasm, right? That requires some type of stimulation. What type of stimulation will often lead to the prostate orgasm? I think, first of all, we have to talk about circumstances and about the situation. So if you're not in a sexually stimulating situation, that won't happen. And this is very important to keep in mind. It's not just putting some device anally and, and try to, to get an orgasm. I don't think it's, it works this, this way. So we have to be sexually aroused. It would help a lot. And not everybody is able to, to reach a prosthetic orgasm that's totally individual. So it requires, obviously it requires some, some kind of work and some kind of, of trying how, how this might work. And it's just learning by doing, I think. But it, it's takes longer than it might take with the peanut stimulation. Maybe we might also talk about the use of because I found this very interesting article about the use of vibrators in heterosexual men. I think, I don't think it's, I tried to find out which kind of vibrator are they talking about? Because as I said in the beginning, there are vibrators that you can use on the penis. So it's like a, a, a kind of pliers kind of, kind of thing that you put on and then it vibrates. But I, I think they are talking about vibrators for women that they use in partnered sex and in solo sex. And very interesting. What was it? 44% of the American men, heterosexual men, seem to have used some kind of vibrator during solo sex or partner sex. And I think this is very interesting to, that many men are willing to explore what, what's going on and, and different ways of sexual pleasure. And there was also a study that I was reading about college students, undergraduate college students. It wasn't a, a very large sample. It was 170 college students, they were also heterosexual and was also a high percentage, I think it was almost half, who had tried anal stimulation. I don't know if it was a prostate stimulation, but at least it was anal stimulation. And uh, these guys, they identified themselves as heterosexual. So I think, in, especially in the younger generations, that there is some change going on right now. So many great points that I, <laughs> you said, so everything that was on my mind. One is that there are lots of, based on my experience, heterosexual men that are not identified, that are interested in men that enjoy anal stimulation. It doesn't say anything about your sexual orientation. Like our bodies are different, firing no. is different. So there's nothing related to your sexual orientation if you like certain kind of stimulation. I think that goes with all types of sexual experiences. I think you brought up such an interesting point about the vibrator. I, and I'm also curious about what type of vibrator that work because I was at one of my colleagues' workshop, which I love her, and she was talking about how she thinks when women, of course, with the permission of their partner, using a vibrator in the area between the partner's penis and anus, when they put the vibrator there, that creates pleasure. And I tried it at, mm -hmm. <laughs> it didn't lead to anything. <laughs> Maybe that was a wrong vibrator or that's not something that works for us. 
But I also know that there are vibrators that goes with cock rings and like those, those ones also increase men's pleasure, but that, that reduces the, that sometimes lead to early ejaculation. Have you looked into that? What type of vibrator or was I kind of like, did I get it right? That's the area that leads to pleasure. Yes, but I, I couldn't find any hint to what vibrator that was used in this study or what, what people were using. And so I figured it must be some vibrator for women because they, they don't produce this kind of vibrator for men. So it was heterosexual. So I, I think they, the women had the vibrator and the men were trying what to do with it. <laughs> I think that's and very interesting. Go ahead. I, I think th this is another very interesting point when we come back to sexology that we have to keep in mind that there is no normal. So people were asking me all the time, is this normal? And I say, I don't know, because you define what's normal. And this is when we come to, to inner stimulation, when we come to prostate stimulation, people might think that this is not normal, but what is normal is, is defined by them and not by anybody else. And this is one of the, the very important principles when, like when you're, when you're doing sex therapy, I mean, you, as a sex therapist, you know that. It's not about our sexuality as therapists. What we think is normal is totally different from, from, might be totally different from, from our clients' expectations of what is normal. So knowing ourselves and our sexuality is very important when, when it comes to sex therapy, because people might tell us things that we don't agree with, agree with as private persons, but as therapists, we just take it. Okay. That's normal for them because they have to to say to us and uh, describe to us how their world looks like, because we can't assume that we know unless they tell us how it, how it looks like. And there's many people who think, well, this is not normal or I, I, I don't agree with this. But in, in reality, they, may, maybe they would like to try this, but it's just upbringing and education. And, and sometimes it's religion that forbids to, to explore these areas. And I get a lot of. Not a lot, luckily not a lot, but some, sometimes I get very nasty comments on my videos on YouTube about masturbation. So masturbation is a sin and you're the devil and, and what they accuse me of being. So it's very interesting how things are viewed even today. Like we're, we're looking at the sexual taboos that were once invented, like in the, in the, in the 19th century, and they still live on until today. And this is a very big hindrance to any stimulation, prostate stimulation, prosthetic orgasms. And I think there's still a lot of work to do to, to enlighten people and, and to get their, get them more open-minded. Right. And I think when it comes to normal, I talk to my clients that, are you asking if it's common or not? Because like everyone's sexuality is very different. I think when it comes to sexual techniques, because that there are positive of research and people talking to me about things that I have an experience. I refer them to the colleagues that they teach those things, right? Because I feel like if I haven't read this study, hasn't worked for me, haven't learned about sex therapy, then that's something that someone else needs to teach you. <laughs> and I think gladly that like as a sex therapist, kind of like someone that's a psychologist, most often people come because of the psychological barriers related to their sexual experiences. Like I, we have wonderful sex educators that they, that's what they do. They teach you different techniques and strategies that I often refer people to. And kind of like your comment to masturbation, it's, it's very interesting how different parts of the world that's still very taboo. I talked about it in my Farsi page because people ask questions and they reported me like within an hour, my account was demonetized. <laughs> 
and I wasn't showing anything. I was just talking about this is like what research says. And it's so crazy that people have this strong reaction to something that's different than what they learned previously or according to their religious teachings. Yeah. And, and I just recall a very, an episode that I had, I think two years ago about, uh, it was about sex therapy. And I was at the golf club and one of the, the golfers, he asked me, well, you, you do sex therapy, right? And I say, yes. And he said, oh, so how, how does it go? How, how you do, how do you do it? And I said, well, you tell me how you think I do it. And he said, well, you, you get undressed and the couple gets undressed and you show them how it's done. <laughs> <laughs> and, and this is, I think that's very, very often that you might experience this with your clients as well, that they have totally different ideas of what sex therapy is all about. And I tell them it's very boring, actually. Um, I don't show you any techniques. I don't show, show you any sex tricks. And it's, it's all about you and what you want to do and how you can, can increase your well-being by uh, through sex and and what is done it's, it's up to you i don't know what you do but and and they won't uh, they won't understand how, how it's done i know it's very interesting that like when people call for a consultation and they say oh well what does that look like and there's a part of me that i know they think I, i'm gonna like i'm a i'm not a sex surrogate i'm not like there's no nudity i have to educate them with that well I'm very excited to check out your video on G-Spot. And, you know, I heard about the physician's, the gynecologist's name. I couldn't ever pronounce it. <laughs> so I'm glad that we have another German pronouncing it on this show. But I know in your YouTube, you talk about like lots of different topics. So for our listeners that they want to learn more about you, about your channel, where can they get a hold of you? It's Euro channel. It's not like the, the tunnel between France and, and Great Britain. It's like from urology, Euro channel. That's for the, the English speaking listeners. Don't be, get afraid there. In the beginning, I, I was experimenting with a lot of languages. So there are a lot of German videos, but I switched to English exclusively a year ago. So I, I opened another channel for the German listeners. If they listen, it's called, and then there they can see a lot of, of videos, sound. Not all of them about sexual issues. I, I try to, to have a, a healthy mix of what I think is important to know. These are the less popular videos, but I think they are important. Like my video about uh, testicular torsion, I think it's extremely important because when you're young, sometimes happens that one of the testicles can twist. And if you don't fix that immediately within the first couple of hours, the testicle is gone. You have to, to remove it. Oh, wow. And it happened uh, to my friends this year. He called me and he said, well, my, my son, he came for two days ago and he said, my testicle hurts. And I said, you go to the hospital immediately. It was too late. Oh, so no. the testicle had, you were fit. So it has to be removed. So I think YouTube is a very good chance to, to inform people about these things. Because if you don't know that, you, you might think, well, this goes away after maybe two days, but you have two hours to fix mm -hmm. that, oh, wow. to go to the hospital. And, and this is, this is the content I think is important, but well, I do content about penile length. I have a show which is called Penis Around the World. I'm sure yeah. the people are like, <laughs> that one them. is a hit. <laughs> I bet it has millions of no, views. <laughs> they think I, I actually travel around the world and measure penises. So. I, one of the first videos I did was about Nigeria, just because there was so much data about Nigeria on the internet and, and, and scientific literature. And then I got all these comments saying I, I should leave the Nigerian men alone and I should leave the country. <laughs> <laughs> 
Do you have any studies on like videos on Iranian, like Middle Easterns? <laughs> yes, I, I'm, I'm preparing one. There is some data about Iraq too. Awesome. <laughs> but it's, it's not very, it's difficult to, to get some, some data about America, as a matter of fact. There's also, it's a lot of sexual stereotyping. It's another very important area that I think it's, it's important to address that black people don't have large penises because they're black. There are, there are large penises everywhere. There, there are Asians who have very large penises. There are black men who have very small penises and there's everything. So I, I don't think if it was like people think it is, it, it should be that it wasn't, I think people would just die out. So the human race wouldn't, wouldn't survive if, if penises were that big, like some people think. Well, this is okay, incredible. This is another topic. <laughs> Back to the process. We got have we have we gotta have you back on the show. And meanwhile, people can check out your YouTube channel to check out all of those fun and informative videos. I, I always send which educational content, and I think it's important for people to know with educational inter- entertainment kind of material. <laughs> Seems like that's what I, you're I do, doing. I do, some, I do some entertainment as well. So for Christmas, I played the saxophone on two videos, and two years ago, I made a video on Hindi on um, premature ejaculation. It was very much fun. I don't speak Hindi. Okay. <laughs> I, I went to the and, and, and I got a text about premature ejaculation. And this was when shorts were rolled out in, in India. This is why I did this. And it was in, in India exclusively. So I, I thought, I'll do this in Hindi. And then I was like a language lab. I was sitting each each evening and I was repeating all the words and, and try to sound them right. And then I just learned them by heart. And then and, and it was a couple of seconds. And I had some, some people from India here and I played it to, to them and I was asking, can you understand anything? And then one of the guys, he nodded and he said, yeah, well, but you have an accent. <laughs> <laughs> that is funny. <laughs> and, and for our listeners, like you speak five languages. I know you just, I asked you that. <laughs> so you have a gift for a language. <laughs> like I don't recommend people trying it at home. <laughs> I'm, I'm very, I think it's, it's very fun with, with languages. And I went a couple of places. So I was living abroad for over 10 years and in different countries. And I always tried to learn the language first because that's, that's the key to, to get involved in, 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 into the country and really dive into the culture because language is culture and how you express things and how you say things is a part of the culture. So like for in English, if you would literally translate this to German, it would be, amazing what would, would come out. So some things we don't say this way, we say it in English and, and vice versa. That is true. And Google Translate for Farsi is horrible. Like <laughs> people try like, because they think it depends on who, like, you know, how much experiment it's been on it, like as far as like a beta, beta things, but it's horrible. So if you ever want to do a Farsi one, I would be happy to teach you. <laughs> And like, like, look at the content. But thank you for everything that you're doing. It's just a pleasure to have you on the show. Do you want us to tell us your practice? Are you part of the hospital? Do you want to tell us about how can people find you in your practice? I have my own practice, as a matter of fact. So I was working at a hospital until six years ago. And then I did my own thing and I opened a practice for urology and in sexual medicine because I thought it would be very much of help for people to have a spot where they can go after cancer operations and, and all this stuff, because in hospitals, there is no time for this. So at least not in Germany. So they, they don't care about this stuff. And it's in Göttingen. 
and it's in the middle of Germany. And now you know it's close to Adelepsen where the G-Sport was invented. But people can come to my practice. Just had a, a patient from Pakistan. He just came all the way to my practice. So it's possible. Awesome. So we'll leave a link to it. If you send me the link, I'll leave it in the show notes. And thank you for doing this. That's one thing. My, my homepage is still in, in German, but I'm working on translating it to English. Well, people can see that you're, you're communicating well in English and you're, you have a page in English. So as long as they can extract the email, I think, or phone number, <laughs> they can get a hold of you and your services. Well, this was definitely a treat. Thank you for coming on the show and hopefully we'll have you in future. Yes, thank you very much, Nazanin, for inviting me to the show. And I'm very much looking forward to meeting you again. Yay. That's it for today's episode of Sexology Podcast, where we explore the topic of prostate massage for pleasure with our guest, Dr. Stefan Bontrock. We hope that you found this conversation enlightening and informative. Many of my clients report increased sexual satisfaction, improve even erectile functioning when they incorporated prostate massage in their sexual play. There is no shame if that's something that you're interested in. We wanted to thank Dr. Bontrock for joining us today and sharing his expertise on this important topic. Again, if you are interested in learning more about Dr. Dr. Bontrock's work, be sure to check out his channel. He has a fascinating YouTube channel. And please don't forget to opt in to our newsletter to get our free content. If you're looking for more tips and techniques to experience more pleasure, we hope you enjoyed this episode of Sexology Podcast. And we look forward to bringing you more insightful conversations on sex and relationships. Be sure to subscribe to our podcast. And I would really appreciate it if you leave us an honest review on your favorite podcast platform. Thanks for tuning in. Thanks for listening to Sexology Podcast. For more great content, visit www.sexologypodcast.com. Please be advised that information presented on this podcast is not a substitute for seeking help from a licensed mental health provider.